Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Romans chapter 3. Back into Romans, we had a couple of weeks of a hiatus, thanks to Jason Brown for leading the way uh, and taking us through uh, the book of Nahum uh, during that period of time. I joked to our uh, men's Bible study a few weeks back that we were going to take a break from talking about judgment in the book of Romans to talk about judgment in the book of Nahum. Uh, And now we go back from judgment in Nahum to judgment in Romans again. So uh, the Lord has us on an interesting trajectory here uh, in these weeks. Uh, but Lord willing and by his mercy, this should be the last message that focuses on the judgment of God. So there's light at the end of this tunnel. There's uh, blue skies ahead. Uh, just bear with me for one more, one more trek through uh, the first half of Romans chapter 3. And uh, he, Paul kind of wraps up this section of the argument that he's been laying out. Of course, his theme is the gospel, right? Uh, here's what we've seen so far. Uh, God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, uh, including Gentiles who reject the external witness of creation and the internal witness of conscience and made an idolatrous exchange, choosing the creature over the creator. Also including religious Jews who boast in the law of God and condemn others for their sins, but Meanwhile, break the law themselves and thus blaspheme the name of God by their disobedience. So, both Jew and Gentile, that's all humanity if you're keeping count, stand guilty before God and under his wrath. A lack of religious knowledge will not excuse the Gentile, and an abundance of religious knowledge will not save the Jew. That's the That's the argument that Paul has been unfolding since chapter 1, verse 18. So really for two whole chapters, this has been going on. It's that last portion of the argument concerning the religious Jew, which he's still developing at the start of our passage today. So the first eight verses of chapter 3 are still zeroed in on the observant Jew, And then verses 9 through 20 uh, broaden the scope and provide a summary and a restatement of Paul's main point concerning all humanity. So these 20 verses that we'll cover today wrap up the entire section of chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. And he turns a sharp corner in verse 21. So I'm going to go ahead and read for you verses 1 through 8, and we'll talk about those verses before we move on to verses 9 through 20. So this is Romans 3, the first eight verses. Follow along with me. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? 
as some people slanderously charge us with saying. Their condemnation is just. We've just heard in the final verses of Romans 2 that the religious Jew who recognized that he was among the covenant people of God under the old covenant and had been the recipients of all these special blessings and were God's chosen people, nevertheless would find themselves on the wrong side of God's judgment on the day of wrath because they boast in the law, but they break it. And they look down at others and condemn others for their sins. Meanwhile, they're committing the very same sins themselves. And so Paul had concluded chapter 3 by saying, in fact, what it really means to belong to the covenant people of God has nothing to do with your ancestry. Just being in the physical lineage of Abraham doesn't make you a true Jew. In fact, a true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. And circumcision is not merely an outward ritual, it's a matter of the heart, a circumcision of the heart. And that, of course, would be scandalous to the religious Jew who saw himself as among God's covenant people. So Paul is saying that everyone could be included in that covenant family, the the nation of Israel as a covenant people, simply by the renewal of their heart through faith and Conversely, that these Jews who have the law of God and have been so ritualistically keeping it will be condemned. So if the Gentile will be saved and the Jew will be condemned, what is the point of being one of the Jews? What is the value of being Jewish? That's where the the passage begins in chapter 3. And so Paul begins to argue with a sort of hypothetical opponent, which he's actually already done earlier in, uh, in chapter 2. So he takes up a dialogue with, a, uh, with an imagined opponent. So what an observant religious Jew might object with. And then so he has a series of questions and responses to these questions. There's four questions, as I recognize it. The first one is the one you see in verse 1. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Regard that as one question, one set of questions. What's the point, right? Robin Chura says it this way. If we Jews are condemned and lost under the wrath of God just like everyone else, then was all that God did for us for nothing? And Paul's answer to that is in verse 2. Much in every way. What value does he have? Much. There's a lot of benefit. There's a lot of value. There's a lot of advantage to being ethnically Jewish. To begin with, he says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And in fact, while he says that there is much value in every way to being Jewish, the only actual tangible value he lists right here is this that they have received the oracles of God. The oracles of God. And by this, he means the entirety of the Old Testament Scripture, the law, the prophets, and the writings, all of it. 
Robert Yarbrough says, to have God's oracles is to possess a transcript of God's truth that surpasses every holy book ever composed in any other cultural or religious setting. It is an enormous benefit, an enormous blessing, an enormous gift of grace that God has given to the Jewish people in the Hebrew scriptures, that he had sent to them his prophets, that he had written this revelation to them as his people and made all of these promises to them and the foreshadowings of a Messiah to come. The oracles of God were entrusted to this people. What an enormous blessing. Indeed, he echoes in this the verdict of Moses. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, Moses said, What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? God has not blessed any other people on earth in this way. God has only to you, the Jewish people, given the oracles of God. To discount that or discredit that is foolishness. So what advantage is there to being Jewish? Oh my goodness, you've received, you've been entrusted with the promises and prophecies and the precious truths of God's word, the oracles of God. Now, that's the only benefit he mentions right here. But later in chapter 9, verse 4, as in a lengthier treatment of the Jewish people, he speaks of some other blessings, some other advantages that the Jewish people have. So in chapter 9, verse 4, he says, to them, speaking of those who are ethnically Jewish, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, right? The deliverer, the Messiah who would come into the world, would come through their line. Blessed indeed is this line, is this people, what advantage then has the Jew much in every way? And especially, as he highlights here in chapter 3, verse 2, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Let me just say this to us today. What a treasure is God's word. How much fuller and more wonderful is the revelation that we have received in both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. The Gospels that reveal Christ and the letters, the epistles that unfold and explain and apply the truth of the Gospel. And the, the revelation at the end of the Bible that, that helps us understand all of human history in light of God's coming kingdom. What a treasure we have in the Word of God. Do we avail ourselves of it as we ought? Do we seek its wisdom and understanding as diligent students? Fathers, are you leading your family to know and love the Word of God? Children, are you looking to the Word for wisdom and understanding about how to face life and what is important and how God thinks and what He values? The word of God is of enormous benefit and blessing to his people, and we neglect it to our demise. What advantage has the Jew much in every way, especially the oracles of God? 
Well, the second question comes in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? The ESV is pretty clunky here. In fact, I've read it about 20 times out loud this week, and I stumble over it almost every time I try to read it. The word faithlessness is really probably better rendered as unbelief. He's talking about religious Jews who have not trusted Christ, who have not received their own Messiah as their deliverer, as their Savior. So has their unbelief nullified the faithfulness of God? In other words, will the unbelief of religious Jews who have rejected Christ cause God to be unfaithful to his covenant with them? That's the question that I think this imagined opponent, objector, is raising. Now, this question is so important to Paul that he takes it up at length in chapters 9 through 11. That's largely what those three chapters are dealing with. Has God abandoned his covenant with Israel? Is that how we ought to interpret the gospel of Christ? Of course, the answer basically is no, and that's about as much as he gives us here. He does not give nearly so full of an answer in this passage as he will give in chapters 9 to 11, and so my comment today will be similarly brief. His answer, though brief, is emphatic, by no means. Some translations say, God forbid. It is an emphatic negation. This could never be. Paul loves to use this phrase. It'll occur several other times in the book of Romans. So are you saying that because Jewish people who were entrusted with the oracles of God have not believed upon their Messiah and trusted in Christ, are you saying that God is thereby rejecting them and will be unfaithful to the promises he's made to them? And Paul's answer, very briefly, is Absolutely not. May it never be. We ought not even to think that that would be the case. Look at what he says in verse 4 after that emphatic negation. By no means. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then he quotes Psalm 51 verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And that language, uh, that God would prevail when he is judged, has the idea of a person disagreeing with God or making a charge against God. Sort of like this. Well, God is unjust. God is unfaithful. And actually, what we find is when people judge God like this, he will be found to prevail. He will be vindicated. His truth will win out. The way that the Hebrew uh, Bible in Psalm 51.4 translates that is actually to say that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So in that case, God is the one judging and his judgments are right and true. Let God be true though everyone were a liar. In other words, even if every human being that God ever created is a liar and a cheat and a promise breaker, that will never be true of God. Aren't you so glad that that is true? 
All other ground is sinking sand, but Christ is a solid rock for our feet in an ever-shifting world. God will never forsake his promises. God will never lie. God will never go back on what he has said. Does Jewish faithlessness mean God will be unfaithful? Absolutely not. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Question number three in verse five. Is God unrighteous to judge sin if sin highlights his glory? That's a summary of it. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? So if... As Romans 1.18 says, God is revealing his wrath against human unrighteousness. And if God's wrath is itself a demonstration of his righteousness, then couldn't it be said that our sin actually throws a spotlight onto God's righteousness? By contrast, he looks great. Aren't we actually sort of doing him a favor with our sin? Making him look good? Or even, perhaps this objector might say, doesn't he actually sort of need our sin in order to spotlight his righteousness by revealing his wrath against us? The argument is so ludicrous that, he, that Paul gives this little disclaimer, I speak in a human way. Like, this is so far from godly wisdom, it's almost ridiculous to even say it. But make no mistake, God doesn't need us in any sense in order to be completely and utterly who he is. His righteousness is 100% intact, even if there is no unrighteousness in his world that must be condemned. All right? We do him no favors by our sin and unrighteousness. So the notion that God could be considered unjust in judging our sin, which is what's at the heart of that question, is God unjust? To judge sinners. The notion that God could be considered unjust in judging our sins, since it actually spotlights his righteousness, is anathema to Paul. For a second time, we get his, his emphatic negation by no means. May it never be. God is righteous in his judgment of sin. And the fourth question, or group of questions, comes in verses seven and eight. If through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? You can obviously see the relation, the logical relation to the question that came before it. And verse 8, here's the conclusion of it. And why not do good, and why not do evil, that good may come? Right? So if my sin's going to be judged, and if the judgment of God on my sin actually spotlights his righteousness, then maybe our philosophy of life should be, let's just keep on sinning. Let's just do more and more evil. Because God's going to judge what's evil, and he's going to look great. So we're actually glorifying God in our sin. So the, this question, you may notice, he doesn't actually answer. What he says is some people slanderously charge us with saying this, and their condemnation is just. God will judge them, and he will be just in judging them for even suggesting that that is what we teach. That's all he says. 
doesn't actually give an answer here. I think the answer of the previous question sort of carries over, right? God is absolutely just to judge sin, and so the notion that we should continue sinning, we should do evil so that good may come, is just ridiculous, right? And in fact, it's slanderous, he says. It twists and distorts the message that he is preaching to such a degree that it is condemnable, and their condemnation is just. So, Robert Yarborough suggests two likely reasons uh, why Paul doesn't actually answer this question. Number one, he wants to get on with his argument, right? Uh, and provide a, pr- providing a lengthy reply to this charge may land him out in the weeds somewhere. And secondly, he's going to address that more fully in chapter 6. In fact, the, those very words may have reminded you of a verse in chapter 6 where he says, Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And there again we'll have... By no means, may it never be, right? Same answer, same issue. For now, he's satisfied to simply denounce the twisted logic of the questions in verses 7 and 8 by indicating those who raise this question or charge Paul with advocating it are justly condemned by God. And that's as far as he goes with it. So the final verdict for the Jews then is that God is just in his judgment of them. They have broken the law, They have had all of the warning and truth that they needed, and they have rejected it and spurned it and sinned against God. They've broken his law. They've trampled upon the oracles of God with which they were entrusted, and they will not escape his righteous wrath any more than the idol-worshiping pagans will escape it. The religious and irreligious alike will stand before the judgment seat of God to be judged on the basis of their works. And the verdict will not be pretty. And in fact, that's a good segue into the very next section that I summarize this way. Everyone is guilty before God. It's a summary and a restatement of the argument he's been laying out methodically for the last two chapters. Everyone is guilty before God. Look at verse 9. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 20. We'll talk about these verses. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now you'll notice verse 9 asks a similar question to verse 1. Are Jews any better off? What was this question in verse 1? What advantage has the Jew? But his answer is different, isn't it? In verse 1, he said, what advantage has the Jew? What value is circumcision? And his answer was, much in every way. 
In verse 9, when he says, are we Jews any better off? He says, no, not at all. Why the different answer? Well, it's really a different question. The question in verse 1 was asking about the sort of uh, covenantal position of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. What advantages do they have for having been the people that have received the oracles of God and the promises from the prophets and all these things, right? And the blessings he enumerates down in chapter 9, verse 4. So there is blessing and benefit and advantage to being Jewish. But when it comes to verse 9 and the question of standing before God on the day of judgment, are Jews better off because of those blessings? And his answer is no, not at all, not at all. Even though Jews have certain blessings and advantages as God's old covenant people, they are not on any better footing concerning judgment and salvation. Indeed, he says, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then, just as a reminder and a summary of that point, he gives a litany of Bible quotes in verses 10 through 18. If you will, Paul proof texts here. Now, we look down on proof texting. Usually we say that with a smirk about people who don't know how to use the Bible. And it's true that if you pluck a verse out of its context and distort its meaning and then try to make that say what you want it to say, that's a bad way to approach the Scripture. But proof texting is really a useful practice and something we do all the time. It's you make a claim, you make an, a theological assertion, and then you take a scripture passage and quote it in order to provide support for the claim that you're making. So long as you have used and understood the passage correctly that you're quoting, there's not a thing wrong with proof texting. We do it all the time. That's what Paul is doing here in verses 10 through 18. He says, Jews and Greeks alike are under sin. Let's talk about, remember those oracles of God that the people of Israel have been trusted with? Let's look at what those have to say, shall we? And then he gives us a litany of texts from the Old Testament scriptures that demonstrate conclusively and broadly and comprehensively that all human beings are condemned by their sin before a holy God. What he's saying is not new with him. It's consistent with the oracles of God that they received. He quotes from, you don't have to track all this. You can probably find this in the notes of a study Bible or something later. He quotes from Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm 5, verse 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 10, verse 7, Isaiah 59, 7 through 8, and Psalm 36, 1 in these eight verses. Let's take a look at those oracles and see what they say and the picture that they paint of human righteousness is not very pretty, is it? I want you to notice the holistic scope of these verses and the inventory of body parts that are implicated in human unrighteousness. He says no one understands. What's that? That's the, that's the mind. No one seeks for God. What's that? That's the heart, the will. He talks about their throat, their tongues, their lips, their mouth. What did Jesus say about what we say? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So if our throat is an open grave and what comes out of our lips is the poison of asps and what comes out of our mouths is cursing, what does that say about what's in the heart? 
It's dead. It's rotten. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There's no fear of God before their eyes. We can't think straight. We can't see straight. We don't feel correctly. We desire and pursue the wrong things. Our feet are carrying us into paths of violence and wickedness. Our mouths are spewing forth poison and bitterness and death because that's what's in our heart. That is what this litany of Bible passages, this proof texting, demonstrates. Human beings are sinners to the core. We have a handy little handle for this in a doctor that we call total depravity. Now, that doesn't mean that human beings are as depraved as they could possibly be in degree. Total depravity doesn't mean everything about a person is nothing but wickedness and sin and brokenness. What it means is every part of a human person is affected by sin. Because we still believe in the image of God, right? That God created all human beings in his image. And even though sin has distorted it and muted it and covered it over, it's still there. There's still glimpses of goodness because every person is made in the image of God. But nevertheless, every aspect of a human being, mind, heart, mouth, body, soul, is affected by sin and fallen. That's what we mean by total depravity, and that's what, that's what we see in these verses. He summarizes in verse 19, what the law speaks, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. I think what he means here is, again, the entire Old Testament. I don't think he's speaking of the law in a formal sense as like the Mosaic law or the Ten Commandments. I think he's here referring to all of those oracles of God that the people of Israel had been entrusted with. What the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law. And I think those who are under the law in this context is everybody. Whatever law they've been given, people sin against whatever light they've received, whether they're religious people or ethnically Jewish and had the word of God or they're Gentiles and lived in a pagan context and didn't have that kind of religious awareness. God has given them witnesses to himself. In creation, in their conscience, in the internal law that he's pressed upon their hearts. And every person has sinned against that light. So what the law speaks, what the word of God speaks, it speaks to those who are under the word of God. That is, who are accountable to it, under its authority, and that's everyone. To quote Yarbrough one more time, he says, this means all people everywhere. There is only one God. He created all things and peoples. He does not have different religions, scriptures, and plans of salvation for different groups. What God's law describes and prescribes applies to the whole race of Adam and Eve. And that's why he says in verse, later in verse 19, so that, right, so the law speaks to all people so that every mouth may be stopped. What does that mean? They're out of defenses. They're out of excuses. When I'm standing before the judgment seat of God, I don't have any other arguments to make. My mouth is stopped. And the whole world held accountable to God. Because, he says in verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. 
Now, this is not a criticism of the law. It's not a criticism of what the law says, and it's not a criticism of, of obeying God's law. He's explaining what he just said in verse 19 and putting a cap on this whole section of his argument. Namely, the law doesn't justify anyone. It can only condemn us. A medical diagnosis is not a cure. Knowledge of sin cannot save. It's similar to back in chapter 1, verse 20, where he spoke about the idolatrous exchanges that people make. He said that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. They had all that they needed available to them to make a better choice, right? To turn to God in worship, and they didn't. They're without excuse. And so we concluded from that passage that the knowledge of God in creation and in a person's conscience is sufficient to condemn a person, but not to save him. And similarly, in verses 19 and 20, when he says the law is said to stop every mouth is to remove any defense no human being will be justified by the law because the function of the law is to reveal our sinfulness in other words the law of god is sufficient to condemn a person but it cannot save him it can't save a person because we can't obey it we can't keep it we break it. So if you're relying on your obedience to the word of God for your standing with him, you're in for a rude awakening on judgment day. So to summarize what we've seen so far, because we are at a turning point in his argument, the gospel is God's power for salvation. Because it reveals a righteousness from God through faith. But before God's righteousness in the gospel can save us, his righteousness in judgment must first condemn us as sinners. Jew and Gentile alike are under sin, having received God's self-revelation in creation, in conscience, and in his written law, and turned the other way, rejected him. We have chosen disordered worship that expresses itself in self-worship, in sexual immorality, in religious pride that condemns others for the same sins that we ourselves commit. And we all will one day stand before God's throne in judgment and give account for these idolatrous, lawless deeds. And the verdict? You don't have to wonder about it. He tells us right here. None is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The pump is primed for some good news, wouldn't you say? The next verse, which we'll talk about next week, begins with the words... But now, and they land like an oasis in a desert. But today, let the weight of our sin and the sober reality of God's coming judgment 
and the kindness of God in warning us about it lead us to repentance. In Christ, our sin doesn't get the final word. There's a word of mercy, a word of pardon that issues forth from the cross of Jesus, where all our sin was nailed when Jesus himself was crucified there. And all who come to the foot of the cross in faith and repentance will find that mercy washes our deepest stains and opens the way to a new life and a better ending. Won't you come in faith and trust in Christ today? I'll conclude with lyrics from an old Isaac Watts hymn. How sad our state by nature is. Our sin, how deep it stains. For Satan binds our captive minds fast in his slavish chains. But there's a voice of sovereign grace sounds from the sacred word. O ye despairing sinners, come and trust upon the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may we heed your warning. And hearken to your call to bring our sins to the cross of Jesus and so receive pardon and mercy in Christ. Amen.